This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today it's my great privilege to have with us on this podcast, somebody who I have admired for decades, and that's Dan Webb, who's at the law firm of Winston and Strawn in Chicago. He's executive chairman of that firm. He's one of the most, Dan, I'm going to embarrass you probably a little bit if you're capable of embarrassment. <laughs> he's, he's one of the most distinguished trial lawyers in the United States, has been for a long time. He's tried over 100 cases, 100 jury trials, a lot of cases that folks will have heard about. I mean, the one I remember most recently was the BPI uh, ABC News case, which a defamation case, which memorably concerned allegations of pink slime which, as I recall, is not that that phrase got attached to the case, although I don't think it was ever a phrase that ABC News used. Is that am I right about that, Dan? It became a colloquial term that they worked into their stories. But uh, that that really isn't why the, that defamation went forward. It went right. forward because of false statements. Yeah. So, I mean, Dan has represented the very long list of major companies, Altria, American Airlines, Boeing, Archer Daniels, Deloitte, Pfizer. Ernst & Young, General Electric, all kinds of cases, defamation cases, antitrust cases, securities cases, internal investigations, criminal cases. You know, I originally scheduled this after Dan got a jury verdict last fall uh, for a software, a little software company, Versata Software against Ford Motors for $104.6 million for a breach of a licensing agreement and misappropriating trade secrets. Really, that was just, this is just an excuse for me to get to talk to Dan. <laughs> that, that trial was last fall. And since then, he's gone on to other things. Most recently, he represented Fox News in the case that everybody's read about uh, concerning Dominion voting systems, also a, a defamation case. The case was settled right on the eve of trial. My sources tell me that Dan did a great job in that case. And he's just, we were chatting before this podcast and he's, he's told me he's just, he's got a brief breather now, maybe before he starts the next trial. So Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Well, John, it's, it's always a pleasure to be with you as one of my legendary figures in the trial bar and you're still doing it. So, still so doing it. We're still playing in the game, which I guess that's a good thing sometimes. Yeah, yeah it's better than the alternative. That's something else I want to circle back and maybe talk to you a little bit about. I'm hoping to learn from you about You've got maybe a few years on me, but I'm not far behind you on that. And so I scratch my head and think from time to time, what does this look like in the future? And uh, maybe there's something I can learn from you on that. But let's begin by talking about this trade secrets case. Uh, tell us a little bit about that case where you got the $104.6 million damages award against Ford. John, that was a very interesting case because it's uh, well, one of the things you and I do as trial lawyers over the years is that sometimes we get involved in litig complex commercial litigation where the truth is like in a complicated patent case or in the Versada case, they were trade secrets. The subject matter is really beyond what you could ever expect the average person on a jury to understand. You just can't. There's, right. there's just no right. way you and I try patent cases where we know they can't possibly understand the technology that underlies the, uh, the, the case. It's impossible. Uh, you can put expert witnesses on the stand. You can teach the jury. Jurors are great at assimilating information, but there's just some subject matters that are really dense and complicated and highly technical. And uh, what I think uh, the reason they interest me, I do a lot of patent work, a lot of trade secret work, is because I do believe that one of the skills of being a, an effective advocate 
is to simplify the complex. Uh, sometimes you just have to do it more than in other cases, but in patent cases, trade secret cases, in this particular case, these were very complex trade secrets involving a type of software uh, called configuration software that my client developed for Ford. And so I, I, I enjoyed it from the standpoint of, well, first of all, I won the case. So that also enhanced, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> does enhance the enjoyment, John, is you and I know that there's no such thing as we, we grow up as kids saying that we got to all be you got win or lose. It's how you play the game. That's not true with trial lawyers. If you lose cases, you are a loser. Make no mistake about it. You will be a loser for some time to come. And so there are no losers in the trial bar that are successful. We got to we got to try to win the case uh, within the bounds that we play by. So this case was complicated and it was big versus little, big company versus little company, which I like as a plaintiff's lawyer. When I'm on the plaintiff's side, I'm a storyteller. And so what this case interested about is that there was a story to tell the jury that went beyond the complexities of the technology and the complexity of the underlying uh, issues in the case as far as what were the trade secrets and were they misappropriated. There's a story to tell beyond that, which that's what you and I enjoy doing as a trial lawyer, as a plaintiff, where we have a story to tell big versus little, big company versus little company. I'm the little guy here, side with me. And I got this big, bad company that victimized me. Uh, right. So I, I had a story to tell, which I want to get into a lot of detail, but I represented a company that was a small company that had an expertise in developing what is called configuration software. Uh, and we did it. Ford found itself in the late 1990s as you know, this giant corporation. They couldn't build cars. They could not find a way to effectively and efficiently build automobiles because of the complexities of the different the millions of pieces that go into building a car today, all the options, all the functionalities, it is complicated. They couldn't build a car without having recalls and big redesigns. And it was costing them a billion dollars a year. My client came to the rescue, came in and developed technology for them, developed it for them. They fell in love with it. It, it in my judgment, it saved Ford. And then they turned on us after about 10 years they didn't want to pay us license fees anymore because they thought the license fees were too high. And then they didn't like us as much and they decided to steal my technology. And I had to convince a jury that this big company decided to steal my technology so that they could go on without paying me license fees. And so I had a story to tell. And that's why I enjoyed the case. I think I was did pretty good. And I tried to, in a complex case, John, as you know, I got to get away from the details. I got to get away from the technology. I got to tell a story. I'm a storyteller. If I can't tell a story that makes me a deserving plaintiff, I can't win the case. And so that's why I enjoyed this case because it's like a patent case, trade secret case. You've got to get, you've got to pull yourself out of those details and tell a story. And that's what I tried to do in, in that Versada case. Sounds like the story in your mind was clearly more important than the nitty gritty of the technology, because it sounds like maybe you weren't sure the jury was really going to be able to grasp the details of the technology. That's interesting because, yes, well, here's the two things I was concerned about. First of all, I had to pick a jury in Detroit. Ford is revered in Detroit. I can't change it. And, right. and to their credit, 
they deserve to be revered, okay? With everything they've done for that city and for this country. And so I knew I wasn't picking, I, I wasn't picking a jury in Chicago or in Montana. I had to go into Detroit and pick a jury and it was uncomfortable. I mean, every single, almost every juror that was called in for Vore Dyer for jury selection had a connection to Ford. Ford is so big. He, they work for a supplier. They work for somebody. And and they like Ford. So Ford's crap. Did you get to do much individual voir dire yourself? Yes, we, we did. Uh, although the judge does most of it, as you know, in the federal mm. system, we got to do some. But we picked a good jury and they were fair. I watched that jury during the trial and I started the case not feeling really great. I had to pick a jury in Detroit that seemed to like and respect Ford. So I felt like, you know, sometimes you're a couple steps behind maybe, but this jury was, that's the great thing, John, about what you and I do. Our system actually does work. I believe it. I just don't, I don't talk about it. This system works. Jurors will set aside their biases and their beliefs and their prejudice and their preconceived notions, and they'll give a fellow a fair trial. They they'll work hard. But my experience is jurors work hard. They want to get, they're honored to be chosen and they want to work hard and do a good job is my experience. Did you address uh, in Bordier and an opening statement, this issue about, hey, I know this is uh, Ford's hometown here. I mean, is that something you took head on? Yes, we took it on head on and I mentioned it during the trial. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I don't dwell on it, okay? Because by the time I got to closing argument, you and I both do this, when we're, we're on trial, we are watching that jury. We're studying folks. And we know that there are some strong jurors that may lean our way. And we also learn there are a few folks that may not. And we have to learn how to talk to those folks and bring them over. Uh, and uh, I really felt pretty good by the time I got to closing argument. I kind of felt like I'd, I'd gotten a level playing field. I felt the jurors were being fair. I watched them as they took notes. And I just felt, you know, you get a feel sometimes when you're either on the inside or the outside of where the jury is. Uh, I went into my closing argument saying to myself, this jury is going to be fair to me. So Webb, just conquer down, give them a good closing argument, and you got a shot at this. And right. we won. Right. And, uh, and it felt good. So that, that you're, you, you told us that part of the challenge here in patent and trade secrets cases is simplifying things. And that's really part of the trial lawyer's job and art, if you will, is figuring out how, how to simplify that in a way the jury can understand. And I assume that you came up with a way to explain that technology. Tell us about, I mean, without going into the details, first off, did you go through a lot of iterations? Was it trial and error? How did you arrive at the simplified explanation of the technology that you ended up using? And did at the end of the day, did you think it was effective? It what you and I always do. I don't trust my own judgment. We as lawyers think we have a monopoly on wisdom. That is the furthest thing from the truth is you, I do jury research. I believe in jury research and particularly on complicated cases. I need to test what I call, what we call demonstrative exhibits, charts. I need to find a way to dumb down the technology into visual aids that can be marketed and sold to a jury. I am Willie Loman. I'm the, I'm in the death of a salesman. I have a product to sell. I'm, uh -huh. I'm, 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 I'm a trial lawyer. I got a product to sell. I got to figure out what that product is. And I damn well better know what it is to sell it. And to do that, as you know, in complex cases with technology, 
you have to find a way to illustrate for the jury what the technology is in a way that you want jurors to follow you along with a chart or a diagram, and you want there to be that aha moment where you can see they got it. Now, maybe they didn't really get it all, okay? They, I mean, there are complexities that sometimes may go a bit, but when jurors believe they themselves have got it, you're on your way. It's right. when they when they say, I don't know if I really understood what Mr. Webb was telling me, I'm in trouble. So I tested in jury research different forms of visual aids to see what worked. Uh, and so that's what I do when anytime I do a patent case or a trade secret case or complexities, I don't believe I have a monopoly on wisdom. I want to know what do I need to use to get jurors to go with me so that they they get it. And then I got to tell a story about it. I got to right. figure out how to be a storyteller. I got to be Willie Loman, okay, and 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 sell a product. And uh, and so that's why the answer to your question is that you just can't wake up one morning to say, well, I talked to my experts, and here's five charts they gave me. And you're right. going to just you'll you'll fail. You can't try the case for experts. You got to try the case for jurors. Right. And explicit in what you're saying, and you you say it time and again, the visuals are important. What you show them, what the jurors can see, the charts. In high tech cases, they do need to understand, like they need to know what my trade secrets were. And the trade secrets themselves in this kind of software, it's not easy to understand what those darn trade secrets are, number one. So first you got to teach them what were the trade secrets that I invented? Okay, did I invent something valuable that was worth protecting? Uh, did I? And if I did, once they understand what it is, then I got to explain how the other fellow stole it. Both those things are technical in nature. How my product ends up in Ford's own software. In this case, my theory was Ford stole my software and it took them three or four years to steal it. That's how complicated Ford, Ford originally could not develop the software I developed, my client. They couldn't do it. That's why they failed. They came and hired my client because their own tech people could not develop software that could build cars in the modern world. I then, my client built the software, but it's complicated. And then it took Ford some time to figure out how to steal it and then how to get it into their product. And so all those things have some technical steps that go along and you need some visual aids to explain what your product is and what the theft was. Often in trade secrets cases, you've got clear evidence, the taking of the trade secret. You met like an employee leaves and they leave, they download some information and you know that the defendant had the information, but it's often hard to prove that they actually used it. I mean, often that's a stumbling block in trade secrets cases. That is true. And in this case, I had to prove that they they took it, but then I had to prove they actually incorporated it into their software. So I had to show that my product ended up in their software. And when you start talking about what's in software and the code, and it gets a little complicated, but that's where I call it the story comes in. You need to have a story to explain to a jury, why did they want to steal it? What benefit did they get from stealing it? How did they steal it? And then did they actually get it done? Did they put it in their product? And you need to kind of, you need to take that jury along with you on your adventure together to have 
they got to kind of solve the mystery here for, you know, they're the jurors. They got to figure out all those things. Did what was Webb's product? How did they steal it? How did they get it? What was their motive? And did they actually get it into their product uh, and uh, and use it? And so those are different steps. But that's why you kind of need to be a storyteller. I think, John, is you just can't be a good technician telling the technical story. You got to it to get a jury to go your way. There always has to be some story when you're a plaintiff that makes you a deserving. I tell everyone when I teach trial advocacy, John, you know, you can't be a deserving plaintiff without a story. You got to right. have a story to market and sell to be and, a deserving and, and plaintiff. If you've, and if you've got a good story, a believable story, which the jury buys into, they'll help fill in some of the some of the gaps. If there are gaps or things that they didn't get, you'll get the benefit of the doubt on that. They'll they'll say uh, they'll they'll presume that the link is there. Webb told us all about this. He was right about this. He was right about this. He was right about this. I may not fully get this, but you know, he's been right all along. You know, that's right. I agree 100% with that. You got to let the jurors sometimes it actually helps when you do like a direct exam of an expert is to just let the jury fill in some of the gaps, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't get too bogged down in every little hyper-technical detail of this technology. These folks will follow it, okay? If they, they start to learn it and they fo- and then you actually get the benefit when they think they solved the mystery, okay? Yeah. They, they, fig- they figured it out. And uh, it's uh, I think that is, that's part of the art and skill of advocacy to kind of figure where that line is. Mm-hmm. And, and also what you know you and I are both doing is we can't always convince 12 people that we're right, but we don't need 12. We may need only three or four. If we convince three or four people that are leaders on a jury that I should win, right. they may bring the other eight with them. And yeah. so you you got to figure out when you pick a jury, as you know, as I know, we're not only picking a jury that can be fair. We want fairness, but we also want leaders. If we have all followers, we aren't going to win as a plaintiff, okay? Because right. in every case, there will be pro-defense jurors. There were there was no question on this jury. There had to be pro-Ford jurors on this jury. And I don't know what happened. I mean, I wasn't back there in the jury room, but we got a verdict in day and a half or so. And uh, uh, that, that usually tells me that there were some leaders on that jury that we empowered, I call it. I call it empowering right. jurors to fight for you back there and to kind of, if you will, overcome the resistance. Yeah, from the, 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 way I, the way I put it, you, you gave them the ammunition that they needed in the in the deliberation room to deal with the doubters. You know, they, they had yeah. what they needed to have. So yeah. was they showing that Ford was using your technology, your client's technology, was that really basically done through expert witnesses here? Yes, I mean, yes, it was done through mm-hmm. expert testimony and they had their own experts that said they weren't. Um, and the jury had to decide that, but I won't get into all the details, but sometimes we had to prove that they stole our trade secrets because the functionality was actually in their product. And we had the circumstantial evidence that they hired us because Ford spent a long time trying to figure this out on their own. I mean, they got a lot of highly technical skilled, you know, obviously people that work as engineers in Ford they could not figure out how to configure cars in an effective and efficient, cost-effective way. And they, they called it a billion-dollar-a-year problem. So they had failed. I come along on a white horse with my client. We succeeded. 
Well, then how did it come to be that after we succeeded and solved their problem for 10 years, that they all of a sudden were smart enough to do what they couldn't do before? And the answer was they weren't. The only way they could do it is to have our software in their possession, study it, use it, reverse engineer it, and put it into their product. And that it helped to have that circumstantial evidence. So what was what was Ford's story on that? Sure, I mean they surely had a story, some type of independent creation, or you know this is common knowledge. It's not trade secrets. We weren't using. Yeah, we got to that functionality, but it was by a different route or information that was uh, in the public domain. What what was their story? You know, essentially, and by the way, Ford was well represented by very fine lawyers and who did a good, very fine job during during the trials. Who I respect a lot, um, and their story was basically that when my client Versada comes in as a contractor, an independent contractor to learn what Ford does and figure out how Ford needs to solve a problem, Ford's position was this was a joint effort that Versada didn't know what the hell they were doing. They couldn't possibly figure this out. They worked with our people. And so what they called their trade secrets was really a joint product that we owned with them. That was kind of their defense. That's a totally different story. Why were they paying royalties all that time? Well, that's very interesting. They <laughs> they paid us uh, $152 million. And I kept telling the jury, I don't think they, if they own the product, I don't think they'd give me 152. This company's pretty sophisticated. Those folks out there have been to a couple of county fairs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to give me $152 million because they built the, I learned the product from them and I didn't add anything to it. I do think they had some issues there. Was there a principal of your client, Versada, who personified the company well, was a good spokesperson for the client, somebody who you called very early in the case to introduce the company and to personify it? Yes, I did exactly that. I had what I'd make, learning how to prepare a direct exam so that a witness can climb into the pocket of a jury in a two-hour direct exam takes a lot of work, as you know, a lot of effort, a lot of teaching. But yes, I had a couple of company witnesses they personified this company as being what well, here. This company, I just won't bore you with the details. This is a company that started from nothing. It's the, one man was, this is Bill Gates all over. This is one man uh, that had an idea that configuration software could be built in the US. And he dropped out of college and he and a couple of folks built this company from scratch. And they brought in the, they paid the best money they could to the highest and best young folks coming out of engineering schools across America and trained them how to build this stuff and turned them loose. It's what ingenuity is all about. It was just a, a really small operation that had a lot of good men and women associated with it early on and they built it and they built it and they built it to a point where large corporations across the world could not figure out and do what they did. And they hired us to bring that software called configuration software into building complex products that have to be built. and uh, But that's a story. Getting a jury to understand, my guys went on the stand and tried to explain what was it like in the early days when we didn't have anything. We had an idea. That's all we had is an right. idea. Um, and so, yes, uh, I did everything I could to have some spokespersons for the company that were able to, I think, what you and I would call make our client real. We're not right. just a company. We're real people that have a real interest in the outcome of this case. Was there much that Ford could do on cross with those early storyteller witnesses? I mean, I always I always like to try to call somebody that's going to introduce the client, introduce our story, who they can't really touch up very much. 
I think they had trouble with that. I think our storyteller witnesses uh, were skilled. Well, they worked a lot with us getting ready for cross. As you and I both know, we don't we don't turn loose on cross till we've perfected their skills to to deal with the the what I call the adventure of cross examination. But as a trial lawyer, I thought Ford was not really effective at uh, challenging our story, uh, our basic fundamental story about who we were and why they hired us. I, I, but my client had to go on probation for a year to prove to Ford that we could build this damn thing, okay? We could do it and we did it. We brought the best and brightest people from this company together and, and they worked for a year to convince Ford that we had solved their problem. And then Ford said, wow, you guys have done it. And they signed a license agreement and paid us $152 million over a period of years. And that's a story of success. And by the way, I had a story to tell about Judas. I mean, you work for someone for so long and they turn on you after you're, you're working as partners together under a license agreement for 10 years. And you got to trust each other in that relationship. And the fact that one would turn on the other and spend three or four years. By the way, we did not know they were stealing our product. They worked three years behind the scenes because they had to build their own product. They could not let us go because if they let us go too soon, they couldn't build cars. So they sucked us along for three years at the end of the relationship. And then once they'd stolen it, then they said, ah, we don't need you anymore. We're terminating your license agreement. Well, that's a story, okay? Who does that in a business relationship? Is that who you wanna really vote for in a verdict situation? So I thought that we had a, the better of that story. No, I'll just listen to you. I, I, I can certainly, uh, it's not a surprise to me to hear what the outcome was. Did the jury, is the uh, the award, the 104.6 million in damages, is that exactly what you asked for? Mostly what you asked for? Or how did that number compare to what you asked for? It's about 80, 85%. No, in fact, as you know, on appeal, I could probably say, thank the Lord that the jury didn't give me what I asked for. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, it was a good jury. They gave me about 80, 85% of what I asked for, but they readjusted the numbers on their own. I had trade secret misappropriation damages. I had breach of contract damages. They fell into very specific categories. It wasn't that simple. They didn't accept what my damage experts said or their damage. They, on their own, made some adjustments back there. That's what you want to, I think that's why we like the jury system, that they figure things out on their own. Sometimes we don't like the result, but that's okay. We, The system works better than any other system ever has in the world to resolve disputes, as you and I both know. And you and I have lost cases where we weren't happy. <laughs> that's part of the game. But uh, no, they did not give me everything I wanted, but they gave me a good part of it. Uh, and I had, a, I had a very happy client. Right. I mean, could you see the logic to the adjustment that they, did you, could you figure out how they got to where they got? Yeah, we're dealing with that on, on, on motions, as you know, post-trial motions. Right. But the answer, I believe, is yes. All right. So that was last fall's trial. And, uh, you know, you're all set to go to this trial that was, you know, in the news every single day, the Dominion voting systems versus Fox case. And that that resolved. And now you're on to another trial. I read that you've tried 100 cases to verdict. You've been doing this for a few years now. I think 45. <laughs> 45 years. Uh, and, you know, so I... I haven't been, I haven't done it quite that many years, but 
you know, it's sometimes said that, you know, try, you probably heard this trial law, you know, practice trying cases as a young man's game. You know, what's this? You may have wondered yourself, uh, what does the future hold? Am I going to, I love doing this, but am I going to be able to keep on doing this? Will clients still call me? Will I still be at the top of my game? Do you have those musings from time to time? Every day. <laughs> you and I both know that you can't continue as a trial lawyer with this incredible, when I'm on trial, I'm not, I am working 20, 21 hours a day. You know that. I mean, that we have to, there's no other choice. And it is stressful. It, I mean, the truth is, it is stressful to be on trial. If you're not in good health, you just can't keep doing this game. You can't. So I knock on wood. My health is good. Uh, my energy level is as high as it ever was. And I enjoy it. But there will come a time. Well, I'll tell you a quick story from a trial lawyer you probably knew. Uh, Bob Fisk at Davis Polk uh, a few years back. I was at a cocktail party. We were both representing Philip Morris on some cases, the tobacco company. And we're standing around. This has been 10 years ago. And I turned to Bob, who's had a few years on me. And I said, Bob, when do you know to get out of the game? <laughs> and he says, you get out of the game when the phone doesn't ring. You know what that means. It means that they don't want to hire you anymore. That they, right. once the phone stops ringing, uh, you're out of the game. Okay, you got to keep you got to keep regenerating yourself. You got to keep winning cases. You got to keep proving that you can go into the battle and win. Uh, and there will come a time, as Bob told me, there'll come a time, Dan, when that phone stops ringing and you're done. And he said <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. Now that hasn't happened yet, but it's it's going to happen, and uh, it's okay. That's yeah. that's so the, the marketplace determines when you're out of the game. Right. Well, obviously, your phone hasn't stopped ringing. What's next up for you? What have you got on your trial docket? I've got it. I, I'm representing Boeing, the airplane manufacturer. They had two major air accident cases, 737s, three or four years ago that were big deals. And those cases are in Chicago. And um, I'm trying two of the plaintiffs. We do, as you know, we do these marker trials where we hope that we try a few cases and then uh, they, then others will settle. Right. And, uh, and so when you talk about the stress of trials, I was thought I was going to be on trial in Delaware up until mid-May or a little later. And I knew I had to get done in time to get ready for Boeing. Right. Uh, so last week when the Fox News case settled and I was just getting ready to give an opening statement, I remember flying back on the plane the next day, kind of with a sigh of... Uh, you know, it's a little less, I can now get ready for my Boeing trial and uh, have the other one behind me. These are the kind of stresses you live with as a trial lawyer. And and you, you kind of hope it works out over time. And uh, so quite frankly, I'm now moving on to a, this trial, getting ready for the Boeing trial in June. And you've got a little bit more time to get ready for that. And I know what a relief that can be. If you were looking at trying the other case into May and then jumping right into Boeing, we all know what that's like. Yes, life life looks a little bit better at this point, at least from the standpoint of your personal challenges. You get to see your grandkids a little more. So, how do you deal with the stress? I'm a runner. That's I've said over the years. The reason I'm mm. I'm 77 years old, but I'm still running 20, 25 miles a week. Uh, I'm running, and that's right. how I relieve stress. Uh, there's no other exercise that I find that helps me get rid of the cobwebs. But uh, even when I'm on trial, I made late at night night, maybe 11 o'clock at night, I may go out and take a, I may go out and take a 30 minute run. And um, mm. it just helps clear the cobwebs out. Been, that's how I deal with it. Was yeah. 
Yeah, I do the same. I, I also work in some swimming and some biking and uh, some other things. I try to have some variety, but I, I probably run five days a week at least. I'm, yeah. I got a few years on you, John, because I'm now running every other day. I can't, I got to, I'm, I'm worried that if I keep running as much as I'm running, all it takes is one meniscus and you can't run anymore, right? That's and, right. Well, we're so. both lucky. A lot of people our age aren't able, as you know, aren't able to run anymore. So I've always counted myself <laughs> super lucky. I'm very fortunate. Well, Dan, this has been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've, I've admired you and, and your fabulous career. Your reputation is uh, well-deserved. I know your phone's going to continue to ring, and I look forward to reading about the great results that you're going to continue to get for clients in the years ahead. Thank you, John. And it's, I'm great. Our paths have always crossed in the past, and I hope they continue to pass in the future. And good luck to you, too. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.